Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome to the first edition of the relaunched Breaking Banks Asia. In our first show, we step back in time to 2010, the year Steve Jobs released the iPad, Instagram joined the social scene, and Uber was born in San Francisco. The iPad goes on sale tomorrow, finally. It is hard to remember when the announcement of a commercial product got so much attention. It was also the year Breaking Banks founder Brett King released his first book, Bank 2.0 in which he predicted the future for financial services. So today we are going to dissect Brett's predictions and see what fintech has done for bank innovation and ask the question, is it true to say the more things change, the more banks stay the same? Brett, thanks for coming on our first episode. So we want to talk about Bank 2.0, your first book, and the predictions that you made. There's been so much change in the last 12 years in banking and in the world, but it also feels like the more things change, the more banks stay the same. So let's compare then versus now using your predictions. When you wrote the book, what is one thing you predicted that you really thought would happen and then didn't? Well, I'm just I was just looking at the book because it's been 12 years, well, almost 13 years since I wrote it. So um you know, I wrote that um, mobile payments would exceed plastic card payments, and I predicted that was in twenty six around twenty sixteen. And of course, that happened, but not because of NFC, which is what I predicted in the book. It happened in twenty seventeen with the Chinese mobile wallets, um, and of course, as as uh, as happened with with the mobile wallet you know, mobile wallets have taken off generally. Um, so that's something that I got right. But I also um, thought that by 2018 that the UK, Australia, and the US would have phased out checks. So that was one I got wrong. Because that was that to me was the most obvious thing is that, you know, like if you look at the European pattern, um, you know, that's what happened in Europe as the costs of processing checks got um, more significant, but I didn't um, count on the stickiness of that behavior, I guess. So, well, they're getting there slowly. Yeah. So, um, Brett, what's a prediction that you think you got right in the time frame that you said it would happen in? Well, the one that was most um, prescient or most accurate was actually just mobile adoption. So for banking. So keep in mind that in 2009, when I wrote Bank 2.0, yes, we had mobile apps and yes, we had, um, um, you know, the the iPhone, the very early uh, versions of it. We had the iPhone 3G by 2009. In fact, we might have even had the iPhone 4. But at, at that point, the concept that mobile banking would overtake internet banking or the internet banking would overtake the branch in terms of 
and particularly transactional activity, was something that most bankers saw as unbelievable, as something that was not not viable. And and when I was doing the press tour for Bank Two, I remember doing an interview on Bloomberg in in uh, Singapore, and we'd done the stats, and only two percent of banks in the U.S. had a mobile banking app at the time. This was in um, early 2010, like mid 2010. And so the concept that by 2015, mobile banking would overtake all of the other channels as the primary day-to-day banking channel was something that most people couldn't have conceived of, but we were bang on in respect to that. And of course, you know, with the pandemic, um, you know, and the impact of uh, mobile banking there, but not only that, the fact that today more people use a mobile wallet as a bank account than a a physical artifact from a traditional bank, I think is evidence that of the the impact that mobile has had. Also, financial inclusion, you know, we've included, uh, you know, I think the latest figures are 1.8 billion people since the emergence of the the uh, smartphone um, in, in banking that would have otherwise been excluded. So I think that, which has sort of been core to all the books since, is, has been um, pretty much bang on. What's the weirdest banking success or fail story that you can recall from that time or in the last 12 years? I remember that there has been some um, initiatives that have been too successful. Um, so, you know, Ubank in Australia is one of those. So U Bank was so successful, you know, back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Gerd and Monty, who were the uh, the guys really sort of behind that, when they started to talk in public about how successful it had been, um, very quickly there was a change in leadership, and um, you know those guys were moved out of the way, um, you know, um, and it, it was interesting to see because it was clearly a threat in terms of the traditional branch a- a activity. But actually, the Australian market is really interesting for a few reasons. Back in those days, you know, in the early 2010s, the Australian banking market was probably one of the most progressive and innovative markets in the world. And I put a lot of that down to two people, two individuals, um, which is Michael Hart and Andy Lark at Combank. But of course, when Andy left and went to zero, and then Michael left and went to Barclays in the UK, it just sort of stopped. You know, and then we had the neo banks and and so forth. But you know, there there was this sort of overall view in in Australia that you know, oh, we're done. You know, we've done the innovation, the big four. We're pretty innovative. We're good now. You know, and and yet, if you look at now, where, um, you know, particularly Chinese, um, the Chinese uh, spaces, um, and some of the you know, like New Bank, We Bank, others, um, you know, they are generations ahead of um, you know incumbent banks in Australia, the US, uh, and the UK. UK now about forty percent of direct deposit salaries go into challenger banks. You know, if you look at China, China went from ninety eight percent of retail transactions being cash based in twenty thirteen to now it's something like eighty three percent of those of retail transactions are mobile based today, and that's in less than ten years. So um, that that sort of magnitude of change is sort of unimaginable, really. 
You started your book, Bank 2.0, by asking bankers to simply consider listening to customers and how they wanted to engage with a bank. And I think they heard that message. So what is the next fundamental shift in what a consumer will look like? The next fundamental shift of banking is what we call embedded or ubiquitous banking. Um, And that is where banking is just available to you when and where you need it. And that's a logical um, impact of the technologies we're we're dealing with that, um, you know, if you think about the internet and then mobile tech and, you know, Uber and Airbnb and, you know, um, you know, all of these, you know, Amazon, you know, delivery services and so forth. It's it's all about reducing friction and getting you access to the services you need faster and more efficiently. And the business model's changing accordingly to that, accordingly. Um, so when you talk about banking, and this is the way I describe it in, in Bank 4, is that the core utility of the bank is three core pieces of utility. The ability to safely store money or save money, the ability to um, safely move money or transact, you know, um, payments and so forth, wires, and then the ability to access credit when and where you need it. That's the three core pieces of utility outside of the investment um, stuff. Um, And when when you think about those three core pieces of utility, the ability to make payments, that's going to be absolutely seamless. It doesn't matter who or when or how or where. It's just, it'll be immediately across the globe, whatever, just like we do text messages today for, for money. Um, and, um, you know, you'll get more context around payments. So you'll know whether payments are good or bad for you financially because of the the smarts in your wallet. Uh, you'll, you'll have um, better ability to understand how to utilize your money and say, save it and, and so forth. And then access to credit will be highly contextual. So you walk into a Tesla dealership and your smart glasses will show you, um, you know, how much you can afford, what Tesla you can afford and what the payments will be each month. And you might be able to do some configuration of, of uh, you know, that uh, in real time, either with gestures or voice with your companion smartphone. You walk into a, a, a listed real estate property and you'll have a home financing offer built into, you know, your your uh, either your smartphone or the smart glasses there as well. So this is contextual embedded banking. Um, and the biggest change there essentially will be the way we think about money management. And, you know, for the last hundred years or so, um, you know, the primary academic um, or, you know, financial literacy approach has been, um, you know, to train you to do budgeting. And then to increase your literacy, to train you to be able to invest money according to the way the financial services, um, uh, you know, industry frames that. And and both of those things will be dramatically challenged by embedded finance because we will find that the tools we have embedded in our smart bank accounts, our wallets, will be much better at helping us manage our money than sort of the method of budgeting. Um, And same for things like investments and so forth, you know, that robo-advisors and algorithms will be much better at sort of managing that and and producing returns for us consistently. So that's the, the big change. So what does that mean for banks then? That, that has massive implications for the banking sector because it means the org charts are um, no longer 
you know work um you know your product teams that you have are dissipated because you know you you have to work on those contextual experiences um and uh, you know it, it really is the gatekeepers for the, these new experiences become the technology owners the smart glasses the smartphones the smart speakers the you know self-driving cars and things like that rather than banks so big um big structural and uh contextual changes but it, again it's it's sort of doubling down on the customer piece really because all the tech we're talking about is just delivery of banking to customers when and where they need it so the how in many ways is a return to the hardware um yeah i mean it it is in that respect i mean you could talk about modality you know that we've gone from a plastic card or a checkbook or physical cash to now you know smartphone smart glasses smart speaker um so you could frame it as a modality change um but i think it's also it's also behavioral and informational right so um you know that that's the thing with cash um you know like the good thing about cash was you could open your wallet at the start of the weekend. You know, this is back in the dark ages when we didn't have, you know, ATMs and all those things. And you'd open your wallet for the weekend and you'd have cash in there. And that would be what you had budgeted for the weekend. Like, because if you ran out of cash, you couldn't go to the bank because the branch wasn't open. Um, and so, um, you know, you knew um, immediately how much you could afford to spend and and so forth in that. The plastic card, of course, has removed that visibility. So, you know, pulling us back from that to to more of that situation where we know how much money we've got, we know how much we should spend or, um, you know, have access to spend and have more control over our money is is going to be, I think, increasingly necessary. So that part of that is informational. The other part is contextual, is the access to credit um, has been shown to enable people to have more freedom in respect to, you know, their, their uh, you know, earning their livelihood, innovating around their business and, and so forth. Um, and so the, the easier that you can get access to that, um, but do so in a way that's measured and responsible for for you you as an individual or in in the case of your business i think the better so those tools around that contextually is the real promise of banking because you know you, if you were going to argue what does a bank account do for a customer banks would say well we help you save money and the reality is banks actually don't help you save money. They've put a great deal of time and effort into trying to help you spend as much money as possible and utilize credit um, as much as possible. But that's, I think, the real promise of banking in the 21st century is that um, it will be integrated in our lives and help us manage our money better. If uh, So if the biggest banks are recession-proof, we are talking to um, a few bankers about this particular issue in upcoming ep- episodes. So... If they are recession-proof, what sort of changes to their innovation and investment profile should or could they be making right now to capitalise on that strength? Um, well, the, the most obvious one is um, that banks have a lot of players in the supply chain and in day-to-day commerce and trading that are in their ecosystem, but that don't talk to each other. Um, So banks are there and banks basically say, yeah, we'll facilitate payments between 
different entities, but that's that's as far as we go. Um, whereas the platformification of banking, the ability to sort of pull um, services in and you know create connections between customers, you know, of the banks and clients, I think is a really obvious one, um, particularly in the small to medium uh, enterprise space. Um, you know, just bringing the accounting system behind the login, simplifying, um, you know, like the smart contract stuff. That's an obvious area um, for banks to be working on, um, particularly you know, for clients that share their banking platform. And that doesn't necessarily introduce more risk to those those banks. I think, you know, they're they're just it's just a, another um layer of execution capability. But it could um produce more stability for those players. The the usefulness of the bank would certainly increase, but I think also um it would help from a market stability perspective. So there's that great Andreas and Horowitz quote that in future everyone will be a fintech. Do you think we're there yet? And what interesting ideas do you see that could hasten that future? I think every business needs to have some financial technology, particularly in respect to, um, you know, the payments need to be as simple as possible. Um, as a a business, I would think it would be fairly obvious that if you want to engage, if a customer wants to engage with you and buy your product or service, then your objective should be to be paid as quickly and as efficiently as possible. You know, when you think about the US system right now, it still takes three to five days to do ACH transfers from one bank to another. If you think about five days to transfer money today compared with email and text and all that sort of stuff, that's pretty pretty crazy so transfer money overseas quicker these days i know i know yeah absolutely um and so lowering lowering that uh friction i think does does a lot of good for businesses a lot more predictability in terms of cash flow and so forth and now if i can smooth your cash flow or predict your cash flow then uh, there's a whole bunch of things i can do i can tell you that you don't have enough cash flow to meet your commitments in three months time or you know um, i can tell you that you're growing faster and you're going to run out of stock over christmas and so you need to borrow some money to to uh, you know grow your business or to support that growth that's happening um, and so that type of uh, more um, tactical, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of the word, but um, operationalization, of, you know, and money management and so forth, I think is a, a better way. And from a credit risk perspective, it then gets us away from these silly credit scoring systems and things like that to much more behaviorally based systems, which should eliminate, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the bias, at least in the system. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brett. You're welcome. Now a few words about our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. Many of you from banks or insurers listening to this podcast will have experienced highs and lows. It's easy to get excited about the innovation we're talking about, but it can be daunting taking the digital leap. How can you build or upgrade to the latest technology to deliver all that competitive edge without risking, literally in some cases, breaking the bank? Well, launched as the financial services spin-off from SAP, SAP Finear offers the best of both worlds, combining the agility of a startup with the experience of a best-in-class software company. 
Their lean architecture, open APIs, and modular approach are future fit and get you to market fast. But they also have the reliability and scalability that makes them the trusted partner for the world's leading financial institutions. So if you're looking for a new fintech who's a safe pair of hands, check out sapfinear.com. Our next guest is Xavier Rizzo. He is now Head of Strategy and Innovation at Bank of Queensland, and he also co-founded the Westpac Innovation Garage. He has some fascinating views on the ways we're still trying to mash old tech together with new and then still expect them to work. So few people will remember that the latest wave of challenger banks, in Australia at least, are not the first. So let's cast your mind back to 2010 when you had finished setting up NABLAB. What do you remember most about those days and what they led to in terms of bank innovation? So I think NG Direct opened in 1999 in Australia. It does feel that ING Direct was really the thing that people were talking about. It's like for the first time in the history of banking, you didn't have to go into a branch and you could be serviced as well as any other bank would do. Not having to go into a branch must have been absolutely mind-blowing for people Mm. in the industry. That's right. And I think what you had at the time, then you had people going, all right, we need to reproduce this experience. So Virgin Money Australia was launching around the same time. Some of the people who worked at Virgin Money Australia got hired by National Australia Bank, NAB, to launch UBank. So you had, you know, NG Direct, UBank, Virgin Money Australia. So you literally started to have this kind of uh, um, properly regulated uh, banks. I don't think we were talking about fintechs at the time, and we were definitely not talking about neobanks back then. But some of them were experiments that were actually uh, backed by real banks. What are some of the lessons from those earlier waves of challenger banks? And what are lessons that we can learn from the most recent wave of digital first challengers? It does feel to me that one of, if not the lesson, but the legacy, or maybe a lesson as well, is that customer experience was very important. This was at the time where the whole culture that was born and developed on the internet started to really go mainstream. So everybody was watching TED Talks about design thinking and companies like IDEOs, whilst some companies uh, struggled to actually challenge the incumbent. They did prove that they had a point when it came to design, when it came to customer experience. And what happened, I think, uh, one of the lessons that the big guys learned at the time is that they did notice that smaller companies, call them startups or fintechs or digital natives or pure players, had a point because they were obviously proposing something that was very appealing to their customers. And it feels to me that this is at the time that the big corporates in Australia started to create their digital teams. So Telstra started their digital team. NAB uh, launched the, the NAB Lab. Like every single corporate in Australia wanted to have their digital teams and they go they went and re- hired a lot of the some of the people who actually had been involved in this uh, in this web. And these digital teams around the time of the launch of the iPhone, so if you think 2008, nine, a, a bit after the launch of the iPhone, they started to call themselves innovation teams. 
often born in the technology departments of these big corporates. So I think to answer your question is the the recognition that all these concepts that came from this world, these frameworks got definitely adopted by the uh, the, the the more mainstream companies. How far off do you think are we from digital being every day and not requiring a separate division? When I was thinking about this um, this conversation and I was kind of writing my notes, I was thinking it does in some way feel that we're still trying to make Web 1 work in a Web 3 world. So this is the, real, the, the tensions, I guess, for me in the digital world is that you have people who are at the forefront of uh, the digital paradigm while talking about tokenization, crypto, you know, providing uh, uh, some digital experiences that really belong to the most advanced thinking that you know we all we all familiar uh, um, um, from crypto assets to uh, to tokenizations to whatever you want to call it, and we're still trying to make some backend. Uh, processes work, and the tension is probably more in that in in that space. So, if I kind of recap and answer f- to your question, is digital has been accepted, but there is still there is the, the 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 vanguard of people who are in the digital who are already pushing for for the next thing, whilst the the back end of the of the trend is still trying to catch up with the with the with the middle. That's the tech, but there's also the question of the fin in fintech. Challenges to incumbents have clearly mastered the tech side. Why haven't they seemed to master the fin side? So with the progress of technology and engineering, we have all experienced a far much better customer experience with interacting with the products. But interestingly, a lot of the neobanks and the fintechs have been struggling on the fin side and in in the back end of the iceberg, the regulatory capital, the uh, funding. So the problem is, and this is where I think I've changed my mind on this. So when I was slightly younger and I started to work in innovation in banking, there were typically very conservative archetypes who tended to be very skeptical about innovation and their way of expressing themselves was, yeah, I can, Im- I can see how your new customer experience seems to be appealing, but banking is different. And at the time, it used to annoy me a little bit because that was code word for I don't want to actually even try to, to give a go or to open my mind to these new ideas. Now, five, ten years later, I think they had the point that was probably not expressed in the right way. And, you know, their point was the world of banking heavily relies on the ability to source capital in a sustainable way. It is really, really hard if you have a really good, even if you have a really good customer experience, if sourcing the money on financial market at a very sustainable and efficient price is difficult, these companies struggle. And this is where traditional banks have got a superior advantage. And I guess that's what we saw with Zinja and Vault in Australia, is that that was their struggle and that's ultimately exactly. what ended them. Exactly. Now, 
first parameter in Australia is because we are a low population country, only 25 million people, you don't attract a lot of deposits. If we were in Europe, if you were in the US or in any big country where you've got millions of people opening a bank account with you, that would be doable. Here in Australia, it's really hard. So the problem in Australia is there is actually no profitability. There is no money in deposits. So what happens is that fintechs and neobanks would build a beautiful app, which costs a lot of money to attract uh, a few thousand, 10,000, 20,000 dollars of deposit if they're lucky. But the moment the customer is ready to buy a, a house and wants to get a loan, what they do, those customers, is they go and, sh and shop for the cheaper rates. And there is absolutely no loyalty. They haven't solved the problem that people needed, which is not to pay 8% on their mortgage. Correct. So this, this is what's killed Zinja and uh, others. Uh, Vault uh, is that um, they haven't had the time to scale fast enough uh, until the, the, the business cycle changed with this new inflationary um, uh, cycle and the, the rise of the interest rates. And even the people who are very successful as pure players in lending. So if you think of the, the TikToks, the Nano or the Athena, because they are not ADIs, they are not banks which take deposits, Every time they lend you money, they have to source the product. They have to find the money on financial markets. And in an environment where rates are going up, it's costing them more and more to buy the product. So there is a, there is a legitimate question mark uh, on their ability to sustain it. Why is it that fintechs don't seem to understand how banks make money? How could they get that so wrong? So the problem is, if you're a macroeconomist or a deep financier who really gets how to securitize money and go on financial markets, you have a tendency maybe to look at these people doing the customer experience and go, yeah, yeah whatever. What's really important is the margin, the return on equity, the return on investment, all these very savant mathematical financial notions. And then on the other side, You've got people who are sympathetic to customer experience who really know how to build good products. That's not their thing. They probably are not interested and passionate in spending hours wondering how point of a percent uh, of variation of an yield curve on wholesale capital market is going to influence your profitability. So that's number one. The other angle I would like to offer, having worked in, in banks quite close and even recently, very close to the CFO, the CEOs, and the boards and seeing what keeps them uh, awake at night. To be fair, if you are a private company and you don't have to report on the minutiae of your financials, you can spend money on some technology that is unproven. The problem with banking is that it is a sector that is dissected. You have market analysts from Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and the whole of Wall Street literally looking at your margins and the slight variations of your net interest margin, of your cost base, being very mindful of the nuances and the mechanics of running the balance sheet and the way finance works should not be a hindrance or a stopper for open mind towards innovation. You really need to understand how the science works. But it should not become an excuse 
to not think differently and not try to innovate and not try to have a genuine, candid um, look and attempt at disrupting things. So let's talk about that inflationary high cost of capital, um, mm-hmm. high cost of product environment that we're in right now. Yeah. So, you know, obviously inflation is up, interest rates are up, um, capital costs more, there's more risk. And we've also got that risk of a global recession. What's it going to take to succeed in this environment? Yeah, that's the billion dollar question. So I, diff- so I don't think anybody's got the answer, but uh, um, when you talk to people in the industry, when you look across the banks, what they need to do is finish the, the digitization that conceptually started five to 10 years ago, and they need to decrease their cost. They need to find sustainable ways of sourcing capital in this environment. And the next wave of innovation that will be the, 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 the sexy stuff, the, the cool stuff, the, the disruptive stuff will happen in time but once the, the cost base of those companies is, um, is, has become sustainable. Because the money they would have free up, yeah, there, is a, there are a few banks where they say we're still running the old while we're trying to build the new. So we are incurring double cost. It's a dead weight in the, in, in the back. So does that mean that um, things like open banking, which has been mandated in Australia, becomes a bit of a nice to have rather than a than a must get it done it's a really good question i don't think it is because what i was going to say then the next question is okay once you've kind of made the 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 efficient and the old um run properly what is the next thing nobody knows a year ago people were saying what is the next after pay you know what is the next equivalent of the idea what I'm thinking, looking at the news in Australia in the last few months, is when you look at the Optus Bridge, there's been quite a few people who've been talking about KYC, consent engines, um, the importance of data. Like, if you think about it, we're still having passwords that can be stolen. So first point is we're still dealing with legacy of the old web where we've got passwords and we can have those hacks happening. Second is we have plenty of people who are very well-intended, who want to have an open mind, and today are really wondering what this Web3 is about. I mean, is it really the hype and the, are the NFTs and all these new things we've been talking about, like seriously, is it real or is it just like uh, made-up stuff? In the world of banking, I'm thinking that this is where the Web3 by reinforcing security, by, by encrypting and tokenizing things in a way that will actually reinforce the trust could, could actually be the next thing for the, for the banks. I don't think we're going to have some products that belong to science fiction where suddenly your mortgage is going to be beamed from space through some crypto blockchain via a laser beam from a satellite. However, the day as a customer you really are able to tokenize things or your deposit is tokenized in a, in a coin that sits on your, uh, on your screen and you want to buy or rent a house. You see a house on a, one of the websites, like a domain on a, or real estate, and you drag and drop that coin so that you don't have to jump on your car to get a bank check and bring the bank check at the, at the real estate agent. But literally, everything is just nicely packaged and encrypted. 
that could, for the banks, be the next meaningful wave of innovation. And therefore, to answer your question, preparing the foundation for that in today's open banking or whatever projects and regulations are being um, are being put on the table is probably necessary before we get to that next that next step next step but at the same time further decentralization sounds like it could be opening the door to more cyber risk so the world of finance and and banking and whatever we want to call it is still heavily centralized everything is centralized and the institutions have not caught up and more and more you want to live your life and having uh, things decentralized and you want to have control the um, the projects, initiatives, paradigms that come out of open banking and more are definitely necessary for the, the future of what we are expecting for the system to run properly. If you think of what happened with Optus, the fact that a super centralized castle had all this data and it was able to be leaked, if that amount of data had been properly consented and decentralized and distributed in the right way with the customers in a way they can control it in a secured way, that story would have not happened. Our final guest on our first episode is Alex Twigg, co-founder of Judo Bank, and he's here to talk about the first ever neobank and where the next set of innovation from Asia will come from. Well, hi, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Rachel. I'd love to hear about how you started your career as a bank branch manager um, because you went on to build one of the earliest iterations of a digital bank called Egg that launched in 1998, which is bizarre to think is now last century. So I'd love to know, how did you do it? How much harder was it to do a digital bank back then? I was really lucky to, to get invited by one of my old colleagues to get involved in uh, helping to launch Eggbank. Right the dot-com boom, that's how long ago it was. Eggbank was probably what you'd probably now call the first real neobank, and it changed the way uh, UK banking was perceived at the time. You know, we had million customers um, in five years. Um, you know, it, it went, uh, you know, we changed actually the, the way that people thought about banking and how you could do it. The proposition, the, uh, the sort of underlying customer proposition, um, is exactly the same uh, fundamentally to the near banks that we have today. It was um, all about self-service. It was all about transparency. It's all about you know quick decisions and great prices because of the low underlying cost model of the business. Um, you know, and that is predominantly what every single near bank um, trades on today. Um, the big differences, though, was, you know, the technology. I mean, we were dealing with 56K modems and, you know, people had one computer in the house if they were lucky, you know, and that was in the back bedroom. So, you know, it was a very different uh, model and, you know, it took a very different investment profile. You know, uh, we spent um, hundreds of millions of pounds building data centers uh, to actually support uh, the business, you know, let alone, um, you know, the amount of money we invested in the in building everything from scratch from a technology perspective. What have the changes since that first experience for you meant for the incumbent banks? Everything's changed and nothing has changed. So when you think about the the, the nothing that's changed, the customer proposition that we talked about 
um, you know, um, frictionless, self-service, transparent, quick decisions, low cost, a great price. Um, that's exactly the same. That's exactly the same for every neobank ever been launched. But the technology that underlies that um, has moved on massively. I mean, like I said, with EggBank, we were dealing with 56k modems and you know, 286 processes. You know, it was you know, it was it was the rough old days. Um, you know, I was really lucky to come to Australia in 2008 and uh, help um, uh, launch UBank, which was uh, NAB's um, digital bank at the time. And then, you know, technology had moved on massively. Um, technology had caught up with the proposition. So, you know, we had ubiquitous broadband. Later, we had ubiquitous mobile. You know, we even had the early starts of microservice architectures. And, you know, the investment required to, to build that was not hundreds of millions of pounds. You know, it was tens of millions of pounds. Uh, there's still a lot of money. <laughs> but, um, you know, but we could actually deliver um, the the real service proposition that people wanted. They could look at their banking on the bus, right? Do things in the cracks of the day. That's what they wanted. Um, And that was fantastic. Um, But then as you move forward again, and I was very lucky to be one of the co-founders of of Judo Bank, um, which is a slightly different proposition, but basically the the proposition remains the same. Um, But the technology had gone way, way past the capabilities of the proposition. You know, we now had public cloud. We had... Uh, software as a service, um, we had a full API ecosystem. And what that did, what that meant was, you know, um, we could run everything as a service. You know, Judo was the first born in the cloud bank, um, didn't own a single server, didn't employ a single developer. We bolted together 50 software as a service systems to create an end-to-end banking proposition and technology platform. And it's a bit of a stretch, but, you know, basically did that on my credit card, right? So this... The technology was really fast to deploy and really easy to deploy. Um, you know, we did it in months, not years. Um, and, uh, you know, and the cost had just come so far down. It was it was incredible. So what does that mean for digital banking more generally today? This is what is um, going to drive the fintech movement forward from here is the is the access to technology it's the ability to launch new 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 customer propositions into segments that the uh, incumbents with all of their legacy can't follow at the same speed the incumbents have got a whole range of advantages that the, the fintechs don't have but that's the driver of advantage for the for the fintech community um you know, and it's for the incumbents. It's all about you know multiple forms of legacy. It's legacy tech, legacy culture, uh, legacy policies, and how they uh, they think about transforming that all the way through. And um, you know, it's very difficult to take a large um, institution of any size, whether that be a bank or an insurance company or or whatever, through that. Um, uh, through that change process, it takes a long time, um, not to mention the, the investment required. And, you know, if you think about just simply the, the technology spend, I mean, I think there was a recent um, uh, IDS survey that came out that said, you know, um, uh, CIOs around the world are saying that up to 75% of their technology investment and teams are working just on maintenance and support. If you're in that land, it's a whole world of pain. I'd like to take us to Asia. Why do you think that a digital wave is still coming in Asia? Has it not already arrived? 
I think it's I think it's arrived and it's building. <laughs> it would be the way I'd describe it. Um, you know, Asia's got some incredible um, social demographic uh, advantages, uh, and that's what's going to continue to drive the wave. You know, very large populations, um, very large numbers of lower social demographic social demographic groups, and actually still quite a strong cultural respect for institutions. And those three things combined mean that there is a huge demand for uh, financial services. Um, and that's what's going to keep driving the thing through. I mean, Grab is a really interesting model. Grab Cintel Partnership is a really interesting model. I mean, they have quite a strong social element to their thinking and proposition. And they're all about you know, leveraging the network effects from their driver and, and broader platforms. But actually to work in the microfinance space, to try and help their drivers improve their skills, buy better vehicles, uh, and actually provide better um, better incomes for their families. And it's all about creating that sort of microfinance ecosystem uh, and leveraging the data that they can get from their uh, from their broader platform to allow lending decisions that um, traditional institutions would never have or could never do. Um, and because it's in that microfinance space, you know, the the, um, the sums involved are much smaller. So um, because of all of the uh, legacy costs that exist in those larger organizations, um, they couldn't afford to even lend the money if they, uh, even if they could make the decisions because, you know, the, the profit margins wouldn't be there. Um, and this is where, you know, you really have to understand um the fundamental economics of banking and understand what your customer proposition is. So how much money do you make between your depositors and your lenders and then your cost-to-income ratio. And Grab will understand what their customer proposition is and understand how they're actually going to drive those two metrics going forward. The other thing, I I must call it out because of the team in Singapore that have um, helped launch Trust Bank recently, right? So Singapore would get another great Asian market. Um, but, you know, they've come to uh, a proposition, a customer proposition with uh, the Fair Price Group, which is the, uh, the supermarket group in Singapore, and, um, you know, built a compelling um, proposition for Fair Price customers. Um, and they, they managed to get uh, 100,000 customers in two weeks. And I mean, if that doesn't show um, that there's a, another way of coming, I don't know what does. What companies and ideas from Asia do you see driving global change in the coming years? Oh, great question. Um, I think the, the the big things that are going to come from there is, you know, is, is the results of those um, socio-demographic trends. Um, because you are going to get so much more innovation and specialisation in those markets to uh, accommodate those, those socio-demographic trends. Um, but uh, you're going to see um, new markets, uh, new products pop up that um, nobody's ever thought of before. Um, and you're going to see new ways of delivering those products and services in relationships like Grab and Singtel in the way that they, they've really understood the network effect associated with their broader, um, their broader relationships across all of their platforms. Those are the things that I think are really going to drive back into um, the rest of the global economies. Um, and 
you're going to actually find um, a big dislocation between um, the incumbent bank's offerings and this new form of offering that sits below that. The trick is whether or not you can make those uh, new business offerings and new products and services profitable in um, the sort of Western markets. That's going to be the the next trick to to pull off. Um, The people I think that are going to pull it off best are the ones that understand that the the financial economics may not be there in the, in that new product in the Western markets, but can see a way of building on the relationships and the customer network effects that you get from that to create um, uh, highly profitable businesses. And that's, uh, you know, in this whole um, embedded finance space, um, you're going to see, um, you know, so many broader players coming to the market and using embedded finance um, uh, to create deeper and, uh, and more sustainable relationships with their existing customer relationships. And you tie that together with the, you know, the product services built in that and because of those social and economic differences, you can actually start to see a real, a real change in, in what, and what can be delivered. Thank you for joining us today. That's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.